You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. All right, we'll see if uh, this works here. Well, thank you um, for uh, having me here. Awesome. Thanks, Ryan. Uh, it is an honor to be here. Uh, Sean is a dear friend of mine uh, and a pastor, and I was recently ordained uh, at our church, and I think I have a lot to thank uh, as far as Sean uh, goes, the impact in my life. Um, you, one thing I love about Sean is that he's a pastor in every conversation. He really is, and uh, so I know he brings that gift here. Um, just before I get started, I just want to say greetings from Cornerstone, Pastor Rick and Brooks and their families, and uh, they know some of you down here, and so they want to um, just welcome you guys and uh, say hi to you guys. Um, just a little bit more about me, because it is um, part of this message that I want to bring. I just feel like talking with Sean can serve you, um, is uh, I was saved in a drug and alcohol treatment program. So I was saved from a heroin addiction from age 16 to 23. I heard the gospel. God was gracious to give me uh, a new heart and new desires, but he also right away just gave me a passion to help other people. Uh, And so immediately I just sensed a call uh, after I got saved into ministry. Uh, And I now have the privilege of uh, being a bivocational elder, but also being a program director, biblical counselor at uh, Redemption House, which is a gospel-centered biblical counseling ministry in uh, Minnesota. So I do come passionate about biblical counseling, uh, which if you're familiar with that, it is a movement in, in the church that we would date back to Jay Adams, but really ever since Christ, the word of God, the Puritans, they use the word of God to counsel through the issues of life. And so uh, that's one way that talking with Sean, I felt like he felt like I could serve you guys this morning. I know I've got big shoes to fill, but I want to show you this morning how the scriptures counsel us from the word. And I'm going to do that with a specific issue in Scripture. Now, by using the word counsel, right, I know many things probably come to your minds when you hear the word counsel, but what I mean by that is I'm trying to use that that word in a biblical sense, and I mean providing God's wisdom to specific situations and the person and power of Christ to the person struggling. So counsel in the Scriptures, right, can several different things. It includes insight into our desires and into our hearts. It it includes direction to please God, to understand and obey his will. It includes care when we're suffering, encouragement when we're discouraged or in despair, admonishment when we're wayward, help when we're weak, correction when we need to change course. All of those are related yet distinct aspects of biblical counseling. And of course, it is Christ-centered. We aim to draw Christ out of the scriptures. Uh, Dale Johnson, who's the executive director of ACBC, along with a friend of his, Dr. Samuel Stevens, they co-wrote a definition for biblical counseling, which is fantastic. And I've got part of it up here uh, that includes the goal of biblical counseling. And so listen to this. This is one of the goals of biblical counseling. Biblical counseling seeks to reorient disordered desires, affections, and behaviors towards a God-designed anthropology in an effort to restore true worship of God and right fellowship with others. This is accomplished by speaking the truth in love and applying scripture to the need of the moment by comforting the suffering, suffering and calling sinners to repentance, thus working to make them mature as they abide in Jesus Christ. Now that's one thing I'm hoping to accomplish this morning the reorienting of our disordered desires, affections, and behaviors towards God so that we can worship him rightly and grow in maturing in Christ. Now, I wholeheartedly believe, as I know you do, that preaching the word is heralding and teaching grounded in faithful exposition. Yes and amen to all of that. But if we're doing that, on Sunday mornings, the scriptures are also going to be counsel to our souls. They will be counsel, and they will also equip you to counsel one another, because we are called to do that. All spirit-filled believers are called to the task of caring for souls, of encouraging one another, of admonishing one another. This is something all of the church is called to do. So with that said, as a preface, this morning I'm going to give an example of how the scriptures are counsel for us this morning by looking to address a specific topic. And as you can guess from the text read, the topic we're going to look at is anger. Now, um, why anger? right? Uh, Well, 
we were doing a series on counseling the word at our church. And um, as I was reading um, it, my year-long Bible reading plan while we were preparing for that, I was in the story of Esther, in the book of Esther. And the word anger just kept jumping out. I mean, the king was angry and Haman was angry and I just started seeing it. And then my eyes just started opening up to see how many stories of the Bible anger is in. And then you look up all the references to God's anger in scripture. There's a couple hundred references to God's anger. I mean, the Bible has anger all throughout the pages. And then I look in my own life and I never thought I was really an angry person. I'm pretty laid back. And, um, but then I started to see myself getting irritated. And then you watch the news and you, what do you see? Anger all the time. One political side angry at the other, right? I mean, we just, we saw anger in 2020 and burning down city. We, anger's everywhere. It really is. And so I think it's really important to look at what do the scriptures say about this common human experience? We all get angry. And so um, I think it is really, really important. And it is one of the first stories that we come across in the scripture. So I trust you have your Bibles open to Genesis chapter four. Let me pray. Uh, and then we will look at this passage. So Father, thank you uh, for your word, the revelation that you give us. Um, it is counsel to us. And that's my prayer this morning. Lord, it, 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 yes, open our eyes to the wondrous things of the word. Let's behold Christ from the scriptures, but counsel us this morning. Lord, we sit under your word asking you to um, let it direct, guide, lead, encourage, rebuke, do whatever your word wants to do this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, Genesis 4 is the first story of sinful human anger in the scriptures. It's the story of Cain and Abel, which if you think about, um, I think this is one of the saddest stories in scripture. Outside of Good Friday, saddest day, the world. Genesis 3, the fall into sin. I mean, this may be one of the saddest stories. It's the first glimpse that God decided to give us in his revelation of life after Eden. And the first story we're told after the fall also ends up being the first murder. We see sin progressing immediately after Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve broke the great commandment to love the Lord their God with all their heart when they ate from the tree. And the second commandment, to love their neighbor as themselves, it's not just broken in Genesis 4, it's broken in the worst way possible. The worst act you can commit against your neighbor is to take their life, and the first neighbor, which should be easiest to love, is their own family. And yet, here we are in Genesis chapter 4. This is the reality of life outside of the garden. It's a dark, cold, dangerously sinful world now, where even brother may rise up against brother. So we're going to walk through this sad story, and we're going to consider our own anger and how the Lord would counsel us in the midst of anger. Here's how we're going to walk through this. This is an Old Testament narrative. I'm going to let the text determine the outline for the first three points, and then I'm going to consider some biblical counseling summaries and application from the text. So the outline's pretty simple. We're going to look at the situation. We're going to look at Cain's anger. We're going to look at the Lord's response, and we're going to ask this question, how do the scriptures counsel angry hearts. So first and foremost, the situation. Now, the situation here matters because anger doesn't just happen. Now, let's be honest about our experience of anger. It seems like it happens. It comes on so quickly. And we even excuse anger as saying, you just wake up on the wrong side of the bed. But the reality of it is, is that anger always happens in real life situations based on how we perceive and respond to the world around us. So we are constantly interpreting the world around us when we get angry. Now we're going to look at this more in depth, but this is really essential. And I want us to begin by just considering what's the situation in which draws out Cain's sinfully angry response. So here it is in verse one. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. Now one verse tells us the situation. Cain and Abel are the first human beings born in the cursed world from Adam and Eve outside of Eden. Now there is some hope, though, in the conception of Cain, and that is they are obeying the command to be fruitful and multiply. 
And think about this as Cain is born. Just an interesting thought. God told the serpent in front of Adam and Eve that her offspring would crush him one day, which is the overarching story of scripture, isn't it? We're, we're looking for the serpent crusher as we read the story of the Bible. Now, Eve has no, long, how, how, no idea how long it's going to be before that seed comes to fruition, that promise. She's got to probably assume, I think it's reasonable to say, she probably assumes Cain is going to be that seed. She gives birth and makes the statement, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord, which is literally in the Hebrew, I have gotten a man, the Lord. Could be a statement of gratitude, giving them children after the fall, which many English translations say, with the help of the Lord. Their names are interesting to note in the story. Cain's name sounds like the Hebrew word for I have gotten. He's Eve's acquired possession. And then there's no time between the birth of Cain and Abel, leading many to believe they're twins. Abel's name is a prophetic foreshadowing of his life, which would be cut drastically short. His name literally means vapor or breath. Perhaps Eve has all her hope in the first seed who's going to kill the serpent. Each of these two, though, has a profession. This is all getting to the situation outside the garden. Abel is a shepherd and Cain works the ground. Now, what happens next is the situation in which the anger is going to arise. And here it is is in verse 3 through 5. Now, in the course of time, Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So we are told in this text that in the course of time, they each bring an offering to the Lord. That's all we're told from the text. Perhaps they heard how their parents, from their parents, how the Lord killed animals to cover their nakedness after the fall. Perhaps he revealed specifically he would like a sacrifice. We don't know, but what we do know is that they bring two different offerings, and one is accepted, Abel's, and one is rejected, Cain's, which is the primary context of Cain's angry response. So here we've got to ask the question, right? We ask this question of the text. It's a good question of the text. Why was Cain's offering rejected and Abel's accepted? We might think, well, one was an animal sacrifice. One was a Uh, One was a grain offering. Now, the problem with that is that scriptures do say God accepted grain offerings, right? So we can't necessarily say it's based on the offering alone. But there are clues in the text. One thing it does say, you'll notice this, Abel brought an offering of the firstborn of his flock and of the fat portions. In other words, he brought the best. And what did Cain bring? Just says an offering of the fruit of the ground. Now, why that's interesting, right, is because I said grain offerings were accepted by the Lord in Leviticus 2, but notice the description that we would probably expect to see in Abel's offering. Verse 14 of Leviticus chapter 2, if you offer a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer the grain offering of your first fruits, fresh ears, roasted with fire, crushed new grain. Now, notice that word first fruits is conspicuously absent in Cain's offering. But Abel's, we are told, is of the firstborn of the flock. Now, consider Hebrews 11.4, which the author of Hebrews looks back on this and actually tells us even more. And so we can answer the question of what was wrong with the sacrifice. Here's Hebrews 11.4. The author of Hebrews recaps this story and says this, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, And through faith, though he died, he still speaks. So ultimately, why was Cain's offering rejected? It wasn't given in faith, and Abel's was. And that's the best answer we can give from the text. Abel came to God, worshiping and seeking God, giving what God wanted. You know how Cain came? Obligatory. Got to give God an offering. Here you go, God. This will appease you. And... We tend to think, I would never do that. Then I look at my own heart and see, man, how often have I just come to church out of obligatory duty? And it's the right thing to do. I'll give God my worship just because he asked. It's the right thing to do. That's how Cain came to worship. And even worse, Cain actually expected God to bless him when his heart was like that. Now, we're about to consider Cain's response. But the reason why we look at this situation is because 
there is a deeper problem going on in Cain's heart before the Lord rejects his offering that I think is going to bring out and ultimately lead to murder. So let's look at the second point. We're going to spend a lot of time here looking at Cain's anger. Immediately after the rejection of his offering, we see Cain's response. We are told at the end of verse 5 that Cain was very angry and his face fell. Cain expected God to be fine with his offering when he wasn't. His face fell. Literally, his countenance fell. He was disappointed and he became sad, but not a godly grief leading to conviction and repentance, but a sinfully angry sadness. Here's John Calvin describing the scene. Not only was Cain seized with a sudden, vehement anger, but from a lingering sadness, he cherished a feeling so malignant that he was wasting away with envy. Now, it's important here that we pause and consider the word anger. Here's how I'm going to define anger for us this morning. Anger is a response from the heart against a perceived injustice towards something we desire or value that is unfulfilled, lost, or threatened. Now, let me point out a few aspects of this definition. First is that anger is a response from the heart. Now, we often think as anger as an emotion, but anger is not just an emotion. In the words of Ed Welch, biblical counselor, he says, we don't just feel anger, we do anger, right? So we do it with our whole body, right? We get red in the face like the little angry guy from the Pixar movie, right? Who has the flame come out of his head, the perfect kind of picture of what explosive anger looks like. But we do it in other ways, right? That, that, that explosive anger is not my predominant uh, sinful temptation and anger. You know what mine's is? The silent treatment. Uh, you don't deserve my attention now if, you, if there's an injustice. We become cold and indifferent towards others. Anger is both hot and cold, right? And that is explosive or it withdraws and is very cold-hearted toward the other person. So anger is that response. Here's how the Puritan Richard Baxter defined anger. Anger is the rising up in the heart in passionate displacency against an apprehended evil which would cross or hinder us of some desired good. It's a good definition of sinful anger. Now, anger is rooted in our own heart. So another part of this definition, the heart is where our affections are, kind of what we love and what we value, our desires, what we want, our emotions, what we feel, our thoughts, what we think about and perceive, and out of the heart comes behavior, right? So James 4, 1 through 2, listen to this. What causes quarrels and fights among you? So in other words, what causes sinful conflict? What causes anger? Answer, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? There's something going on deeper in the surface. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and can obtain, so you, quite, so you fight and quarrel. James and the rest of the scriptures do not let us say, and I have been guilty of this, you made me so angry. We can't say that when we look at the scriptures. The scriptures would say that that is our hearts perceiving the situation. Anger is always against someone or something connected. Now, another part of that definition to a perceived injustice around something we desire or value. Now, in our story, Cain thinks God is totally unjust to approve Abel and not him. His anger is towards God and his brother. Our anger is the same. We're angry towards a boss when we don't get a promotion at work when we feel we earned it. That's the injustice. I've earned this. I should have gotten this. We're angry, right? I can be angry towards the random driver on the road who doesn't know how to use the zipper lane, right? He's going 45 miles an hour or something and tries to cut over. And uh, it's an injustice that somebody doesn't know how to use the zipper lane to me. But you know what else it is? Is I just desire, this is where it's connected to desires. I desire a peaceful ride to work right? And I shouldn't have to deal with bad drivers, right? Like that's the sinful side of anger, injustice connected with desires. Now, it's not just people we get angry at. We get angry at things too, right? Next time you stub your toe, what happens? We get angry at someone, right? Now it could be ourselves. Man, I'm an idiot. I can't believe I didn't see the couch there. Or we get angry at the couch, you stupid couch, right? Or we get angry at God. Why'd you put this couch here? Now, 
say that, right, because the common experience to draw us in, this is such a common experience. Now, to be clear, though, there are three categories of anger in Scripture. So if we want to think about anger theologically, there are three categories. There's God's anger, there is sinful human anger, and there is righteous human anger. Now, those are three really important categories to make a distinction about. The primary focus here is sinful anger. That's what we encounter in this story. But I do want to mention the others briefly here. So sinful anger, as we're seeing, is primarily about our own desires and our own kingdom. The injustice is usually something against something we want for our kingdom. The perceived injustice is not then about God being robbed of his glory or offended, but our desires being lost or threatened. Righteous anger then is when we see correctly an actual injustice and our desires or values line up with God's kingdom. So a great way to tell if your anger is righteous or not, what do you care most about in your anger, right? What do we care most about? Like if somebody slanders you, now it's not necessarily sinful to be angry about that. We actually should be angry at slander. It's a sin. Scriptures condemn it, right? We should be righteously upset about that. But you know what I've found when somebody does that to me? What I'm more upset about is I'm not praying for their repentance and, and thinking, man, they're, they're sinning against God. I'm more about said that my reputation is now threatened because of them, right? This is what I found, right? So there's elements, I think, of sinful anger and righteous anger in the heart of believers. We do see righteous anger in Scripture. And honestly, we should have more righteous anger at certain things in this world. We should have righteous anger. There are a lot of things to be righteously angry about. Moses is very righteously angry coming down the mountain. Why? Because he sees the sins of the Israelites as he's bringing down the Ten Commandments. He smashes the commandments, and he's righteously angry because they were rebelling against God. They were stubborn and stiff-necked people. He had the same heart for the people that God did. And you know that because what did he actually get led to do? He prayed for them. His righteous anger actually led him to pray and intercede on behalf of the people. What an amazing picture of righteous anger. So we do see righteous human anger. <clears throat> now, if we're honest, that we also see a lot of our sinful anger. Listen to this from John Piper. This got me thinking. This was a message uh, that he did at a pastor's conference I was at with him on uh, sin, what is sin. But there's an interesting uh, quote that I think can help us discern righteous anger. He said this, why is it that people can become emotionally and morally indignant over poverty and exploitation and prejudice and abortion and the infractions of religious liberty and the manifold just injustices of man against man and yet feel little or no remorse or indignation or outrage that God is disregarded, God is disbelieved, God is disobeyed, God is dishonored and thus belittled by millions and millions of people in the world every day. And he would say the answer is sin, which I agree. It's the ultimate outrage of the universe. Now don't hear me rightly. Those things that he listed, we should get righteously angry about. Okay? I'm making the connection that this helps us think through that. How often do we get angry, though, that God's name is dis disbelieved, blasphemed? How much does that upset us? Right? And so it's a good test to check our anger. Our, is my anger in line with God's kingdom? Because the New Testament ethic around anger is, we read it, in your anger, don't sin. So it's not condemning outright angry. anger. Last thing I want you to hear is like, Anger is always wrong, not always. In your anger, do not sin, right? And Jesus is going to show us. We're going to look at that at the end here. How do, how do we move into the right kind of anger? So consider the reasons that cause us to get angry. We're going through a series on the minor prophets at our church. Just went through the book of Jonah. Jonah gets angry. Why? Because God had mercy on the Ninevites, and he deemed them unworthy of mercy. And then you know what happens? God raises up a plant. It gives Jonah some shade right? And he's like, loves the plant because it gives him comfort. And then God kills the plant and he gets angry again, right? Why? Why are you angry? I'm angry enough to die, right? And then God comes to him and says, man, the same anger you feel at the plant because it gave you that sense of relief. Shouldn't I have the right to feel that compassion for the Ninevites, all those people that I made, right? And so we see, um, we see this idea around human anger, God's anger, and, uh, Sinful, righteous anger. Now, briefly on God's anger, 
I want to make this point very clear. God's anger is not just like a little bit better, a little bit more holy than ours. It is completely separate than ours, right? Everything that God does is completely separate and different from ours. I, I, I looked through the scriptures and I was trying to see like, how is God's anger different than ours? And here's two things that I came up with in, in my brief study. God is slow to anger, right? Very different than ours. You see that all the time. And this is actually the hope for the angry heart that we'll get to. God is slow to anger, but his anger, then the second thing is it's always right and appropriately directed. So it's always perfectly focused. Here's a couple passages to show you this. First one, Exodus 34, 6. One of the main passages that we love to look at about who God is when he's talking to Moses. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Romans 1.18, so that's slow to anger, God. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So where is the, the wrath of God revealed? Specifically towards all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, right? So God never just gets, man, he had a bad day. He's hangry, right? Just didn't get enough to eat and just explodes on somebody for no apparent reason. It's not God, right? His anger is always focused. He never has a bad day. Now think about that, how different that is from ours, right? We are very quick to angry, anger, and we think that we know the entire situation, right? I've been convicted of that in my life, right? That I'm quick to anger, and I think I just know what the injustice was, and I'm right. But when we look at God's anger, we see there's only one who is perfectly right in his anger, right? And one of the beautiful, hopeful things we'll get to is the hope for the angry person is actually the anger of God. God directs his anger appropriately in scripture towards sin. It's going to be in hell, the wrath of God. But for those of us who believe, all of the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. One of the most amazingly hopeful things about the anger of God that he poured it all out on Christ so that his children will not experience it. Now, back to our text, verse 6. So we've spent a long um, segment on understanding anger. So here's verse six. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Now I've titled the passage that I titled my message after this passage. Why are you angry? Right? Because it is the Lord's question to Cain and one of the aims of counseling us in the midst of our anger is to help us understand it, right? Is to help us understand why we're angry. Now, this is where I need to connect love with anger because the Apostle John, and one of the things when I was preparing this is I didn't realize there, how many New Testament texts there were understanding the story of Cain and Abel. There are a handful of them. We've already looked at one in Hebrews. Here's one in 1 John chapter 3. So one of John's main themes in 1 John chapter 3 is he's talking about love love one another. It's this repeated theme in chapter three. And what story in the Old Testament does John decide, I'm going to use this to show you how to love? And you know what he picks? Cain and Abel. Just really interesting. Here's 1 John 3, 11 through 12. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So here is the New Testament helping us understand anger in connection with love. Sinful anger towards one another is the opposite of love, where righteous anger is an expression of love, right? Why? Because biblical love is about sacrifice and the good of others, where sinful anger is about self-interest and self-preservation. If we love God, we will love what he loves and be angry at what he is angry, and in the same way that he is angry, which means that Cain's anger ultimately revealed his allegiance to his own kingdom, not God's, which is why I think the author of Jude also uses Cain as a representative for a way of living, right? This is Jude, four, uh, Jude verse 4 and 11. He's speaking of false teachers, and he says this, certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designed for condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Woe to them. They walked in the way of Cain. It's an interesting 
way to say it. Those in opposition to God's church, he's saying, are walking in the way of Cain. So Cain's problem, right, is really deep allegiance to self and not God. He brought what he wanted to bring. He gets angry at God, which is the perceived injustice, when he's not accepted, revealing the desire in his heart was not to worship God, but that he wanted God to accept him on his own terms. Now, they say never to preach a sermon until you preach it to yourself. And I can tell you, um, I, I mentioned this earlier, I never used to think I got angry. Um, but when Ed Welch was doing a lecture and I heard him talking about the different ways we get angry, I just began to see it in my own life. And um, this is a sermon that does um, mean a lot to me because it's helped me see the mercy of God and counsel my own soul when I get angry. I could give you dozens of examples of how the Lord has helped me with this, but I'll give an example just so you can see what a real life thing is. I'm a counselor, you'll see my passion in giving real life examples. Um, my wife and I uh, are first son, Ryland, is here. We've tried to get pregnant for uh, a while, and uh, the Lord just wasn't answering that prayer. He answered it in his time, and I know some of you have struggled with that. And um, what I found by that is, like, it, it, when it was first couple of months, it wasn't that big of a deal. We were just praying, inviting our community group into that, pray for that. Hey, this is a desire we have. And then as it went on longer and longer, you know what I found is just this sinfulness in my heart. Um, other people were getting pregnant, and like there's joy and happiness for my friends, but there's like also this thing in my heart that's like, and what about us? Like, what about us? It just was this internal thing. And then um, I work in addiction ministry, right? And uh, addiction ministry, it's common to come across um, guys who got eight kids with eight different women's minds. And it's like, you find yourself getting angry. This is an injustice, God, seriously? Eight kids can't even be there for them. Like I see situations like that. And what was I starting to do? Get sinfully angry. I was sad. I was angry. It was a mix of emotions. It was the midst of suffering. And you know what? One of the sweetest things was really to see this and flesh this down to my desires. And I was confronted with this question. What do I want most in my life? Do I want a son or daughter? Do I want a kid? Or do I want to glorify God? And I knew that the answer, if I choose glorify God, right, I know that I'm saying this desire then is secondary to this one, right? This one was driving me so much. So when the injustice that I perceived, I wasn't getting a child and we're good Christians. We should get that from the Lord. He told us to be fruitful and multiply. It's his command, right? Like all of the stuff that I could justify. And I asked that question deep down, what do I want most in life? And I think the Christian's greatest desire is to glorify God. And if, if God said, glorify me, by not having kids, I came to accept that. I repented and I reordered my desires properly. And you know what? I became happy and accepting of the Lord's process in that. Now, God was super kind and he gave us the kid anyways, which is super, super gracious. And we are so grateful for our son. But that is what the process looked like for me. I was starting to see anger and jealousy, right? And, and this gift of seeing that desire in me and repenting on a heart level was an incredible mercy of God, right? So that's one example of what anger looks like in my own life. Now, back to our text again. We're still considering verse six. <clears throat> and notice as well in this conversation, um, we're gonna get a look at the Lord's response in a moment. But the Lord is pursuing sinners regularly in scripture. I mean, that is just one of the massive themes in God's word. God is always pursuing sinners, right? The gospel is about God's pursuit of sinners. It is not about us becoming savable, us working towards God, us doing something. This is about God in his mercy saving sinners. God is constantly pursuing sinners. He says this to Cain, if you do well, there is uplift. If you do well, will not your face be cheerful? That's how the NASB renders it which here again is God's grace. Cain's countenance could be lifted even again right now if he would but heed the word of the Lord and repent, right? And look at the word picture that Cain gives next to a warning of grace if he doesn't heed his word. He personifies sin as a beast, crouching at the door, ready to pounce on him. Now, we love this illustration, don't we? Right, I've used this illustration um, at our addiction recovery meeting that I run, um, and uh, I've used kind of this uh, example, but imagine if you will, um, when I'm in Minnesota, I'll use it as the Minnesota Zoo, but the Iowa Zoo. So let's say uh, several lions escape from the zoo. And these are not just regular lions. These are like lions that like to eat people. 
And uh, think like that 1990s movie, if you've ever seen that movie, uh, The Ghost in the Darkness. Uh, these are vicious, man-eating lions. Now, we get a report, all of us on our cell phones, that said uh, these lions were seen just right outside the school. Now, if you are wise, especially you've got kids, you would not leave this building the same way that you normally do if you had heard that report. Otherwise, you'd be a fool, right? There are flesh-eating lions walking around, and you're just going to go, hey, let's go have a conversation outside. Uh, let's go casually walk to the car. No, you don't do that. You leave paying attention and alert because there's a lion out there that wants a snack, and you're the snack. This is the warning God gives Cain. Sin is crouching at the door. But here's the reality for us. The beast of the lion is not out there. It's in here, right? This is the thing that we are called to guard all the time. What does Cain do with such a strong warning from God? He disregards God's words, just like his parents did a chapter earlier. The apple does indeed not fall far from the tree. And you know what happens next? The fulfillment of Proverbs 29, 22. One given to anger causes much transgression. Anger and jealousy grow into murder. Verse 8, Cain spoke to his brother Abel when they were in the field. Cain rose up against his brother Abel, and he killed him. And there it is, the sad, sad reality of where anger can lead to. And we know this, right? If you're like me that likes to watch uh, those detective shows or things like that, you know, oftentimes what murder is rooted in, right? Anger towards the spouse, towards the other person, right? When you see these stories, it does lead to murder. We see that in our world. We see it here. It says in the beginning of verse 8, Cain spoke to his brother. We don't know exactly what he said. The Septuagint adds the phrase, let us go out in the field which means it appears that the early students of God's word believe this was not a spontaneous killing. This was premeditated murder. Rooted in jealousy and anger, unchecked, unrepented of when God confronted him. Now, this is a heavy, heavy text, right? Let's now consider, though, the Lord's response. In verse 9, the verse following the tragic murder of his brother, the Lord confronts Cain after his sin, just as, Adam did, uh, just as he did Adam and Eve. Right? He says to them, where is Abel, your brother? Now, if you don't believe that Adam's sin passed down to all generations, Cain's response is just as sinful as his parents. Where Adam and Eve shifted blame, Cain straight up lies. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? My brother's keeper? Maybe this is a sarcastic remark about his dead brother's profession. But it reveals even after the murder, there's still no confession or repentance for Cain. Right? We have the gift of confession and repentance, and Cain rejected that. The Lord immediately responds in verse 10 with a reminder that the Lord sees all that happens, right? The omniscience of God is an amazing reality. He does see everything. He says to Cain, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now, what does it mean that his blood is crying from the ground? Well, here's an Old Testament commentator on this. He said, according to the Old Testament view, blood and life belong to God alone. Wherever a man commits murder, he attacks God's very own right of possession. To destroy life goes far beyond man's proper sphere. Spilled blood cannot be shoveled underground. It cries aloud to heaven and complains directly to the Lord of life. So what is his blood crying out for? Justice. Took my life. Justice, God. Let justice be done. This was a true injustice. Now, the Lord does respond. He has a response in our text here. It's the first time in Scripture that a curse is placed on a human being. So the earth was cursed in Genesis 3. Now Cain specifically is cursed. He's cursed from the ground to do what? Wander, right? Which is really that picture of sin. The word wander means to be homeless, to wander aimlessly, always wandering, never at rest, irritable, restless, discontent they say, in addiction. It's a reality for all those who walk in the way of Cain, right? We all have a taste of that on this side of Eden. We know what that's like. But God's response here is really merciful. He doesn't take the life of Cain. He would be right to. God would be right to take the life of Cain. Even when Cain cries out in worldly sorrow, right, he's still not sorry about his sin. You know what he's concerned about? The punishment. My punishment is too great. I can't bear it. 
And yet God still has mercy, protects him with a mark so that if anyone kills him, murder, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. Now, just a side note here. Um, one of the things I always do when I study text, you have those random questions that don't really need to be in the sermon. Uh, like, what is the mark? Right? Like, you just ever get curious of that. And uh, there's actually a lot of speculation on that. Um, some think it's a Hebrew letter of God's name tattooed on his head. Some think it was a hairstyle. There was, I read in one commentary that he was referencing an old rabbi that said perhaps it was a dog, the first ever personal watchdog, to which I'm like, no way, dude. Cain does not get a watchdog. He gets a cat. Like, this cannot be uh, a dog. <laughs> Anyways, uh, we don't know what the mark is, but God marks him, right, so that he is seen and nobody can take his life. Now, our text concludes with this statement in verse 16. Then Ken went, Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now, th this is almost identical to the end of Genesis 3, right? Away from the presence of the Lord. Sin always leads us away from the presence of the Lord. <clears throat> now, this situation probably seems really hopeless for Adam and Eve. But if you look down at Genesis 4.25... It's not in our, the text that we read, but it's later in the chapter, right? This chapter is divided with um, giving birth in several different sections. God was faithful to give Adam and Eve another child because it looked like all hope was lost, killing of Abel, right? And Eve makes a statement that God gave her another son in place of Abel whom Cain killed. God is faithful to bring around his promised seed. There is a seed that is going to come through the woman. So they keep giving birth, even though Cain killed Abel, right? God is faithful to bring about who is one day going to be Christ, the serpent crusher to end all this madness. So that is our text. Now, I want to draw out the point four is how do the scriptures then help us counsel angry hearts? So point number one, number one that scriptures do is they show us the seriousness and urgency of dealing with our anger. Now, in our text, anger grows into murder, right? We talked about that. God warned Cain immediately when his countenance fell, and he warned him of the sin crouching at the door, and he went right past Cain, and he killed his, and the warning went right past him, and he killed his brother. Now, here are two New Testament texts bringing clarity to this idea. James 1, 14 through 15. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own sin or by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So sin begins at the desire level, and it grows into death. It's very serious when God makes us aware of our anger, and it is urgent. This is Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. I, I remember my mom always telling me this verse. Uh, God, God's sweet mercy to me as a kid. She always said, don't go to bed angry. Deal with your anger. And I didn't know at the time like that it was rooted in Ephesians 4, 26, but what does he say? Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So James is saying there's a time thing on your anger, like deal with it today. Don't wait until the next day, so don't let the sun go down. But also he makes this connection that the devil is the angry murderer from the beginning. Don't give him a foothold. So sinful anger is urgent and seriousness, and you see that in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. So deal with our anger. The scriptures call, call us to pay attention when we see it. And opportunities from the devil, if we don't deal it, anger loves to bring in his friends, bitterness, jealousy, resentment, unforgiveness. Number two, how do the scriptures help us counsel anger? By revealing the root of anger so we're not fighting symptoms. One of the most amazing things I love about the biblical counseling movement is that we go after desires, right? God addresses Cain immediately after his countenance fell. He doesn't wait until the murder and he confronts him there, right? He does confront him there after the murder. But this text reveals that anger begins in the hearts with allegiances, right? That's the main goal is to address the heart, not just behavior. So much that is out there, right, in the secular world talks about dealing with anger in a symptom behavioristic level, right? One of the most common ideas that's out there, right? Anger management, right? And we see that, you see that in movies. There's a movie called Anger Management out there, right? And some of you are thinking of lines from that movie, Goose Fraba and different things like that that are how do we deal with anger, take deep breaths, punch pillows. That was a big thing when I 
grew up, psychologists are even moving away from that because there was an article that I read on Psychology Today uh, that uh, somebody talked about the problem with that council was I didn't stop punching pillows. The guy was talking about how he, there was abuse in the household, right? So punching a pillow is just venting your anger against something, right? It's not really dealing with the heart. Now, I am not saying that every method out there is terrible. Sometimes it is good to just take a deep breath, right? That can be a good symptom thing, but you've got to work on the heart too. We've got to be heart focused when we work on these issues. Jesus says this. I know you guys are in a sermon on the, we're in the Sermon on the Mount, but this is from the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 21 to 22, you have heard it was said of those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother in his heart will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus is heart focused in his counseling and his description of anger there, right? He is saying that murder and hatred, they grow right in the heart. <clears throat> Could you imagine, right, counseling Cain the way, and this is why I love the scriptures. They do give us counseling, and they're going to help us because you're going to come across people who are angry, and this is an opportunity for the church to be a great witness because anger is everywhere out there. We've got to have a biblical framework to help us counsel those who are angry right? Like we're just, you're going to run across it all the time. I see it all the time in the news. And so, um, but think about this, like I took some of the, the modern ways people talk about anger and I just applied it if it was the counsel to Cain. So here's how I think some in the world would just counsel Cain. Cain, I know you're angry. It's not wrong to be angry, right? It's a secondary emotion. Underneath is maybe fear. Maybe you're afraid of the Lord's rejection. Take some deep breaths, cool down, Express your angry in healthy ways. Go home, punch your pillow tonight so you don't take it out on your brother. Regardless of the Lord's rejection of you, believe in yourself and speak positive affirmations over yourself. You're not defined by the Lord's rejection of you. Don't let Abel win. Right? That's out there. That's out there. Brothers and sisters, when it comes to sinful anger, the scriptures do not call for anger management. The scriptures command anger mortification. We do not manage sinful anger. We put it to death. Colossians 3, 5. And verse eight, put to death what is earthly in you, desires, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Kill sin at the root. We have an incredible message of hope that, that the angry person, their desires can change. Their desires can change, right? What hopelessness is, I, I'm gonna be angry, I just have to learn how to manage it? I mean, think about the term. And I know I'm pushing hard right now, but that term is anger management? Man, we, got, we have a message much more hopeful to the angry person. You can change. We can change. We can change. We don't just manage anger. We can change it. Number three. I've been waiting to get to this part of the sermon because it's my favorite part. How do the scriptures counsel angry hearts? Christ's blood speaks a better word to the angry heart. Forgiveness. Mercy. We looked at how Abel's blood cried out from the ground and how, according to Hebrews 11:4, he still speaks. Talked about that. I think his blood crying out is like, justice, God, do something, avenge me. As we consider this text post-cross, this is the main gospel connection, right? One of the things that, about preaching, right, is when you're looking at an Old Testament story, we can look at this through the lens of Christ and the New Testament authors model that. This is one of the most beautiful texts about Genesis 4, Hebrews 12, 24. This is what it says. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that what? Speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That is amazing. Abel's blood was crying out, justice, avenge me, after the first murder that we see in scripture. But the author of Hebrews takes the first murder and he makes a connection to another murder. The murder of the son of God whose blood speaks a better word. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant who blood, whose blood cries out from the cross in Luke 23, 34. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. His blood speaks a better word. What the sinfully angry heart needs most because like I said, we're all angry. It is not like, man, is anyone in this room angry? No, we all are. And what we all need, 
most is to sit under the cross where God's anger was poured out on Christ so that it would not be poured out on us. Christ's blood speaks a better word to the angry heart, a word that they can be forgiven and turn from the way of Cain and walk in the way of Christ. What a strong, strong gospel message. And number four, how do the scriptures counsel us? By transforming our desires. Not only does the gospel of Christ forgive us, but Christ dwells in our hearts by faith and his spirit begins to transform our desires so that our kingdom allegiances change. We are all born walking in the way of Cain, sinfully angry because the world doesn't revolve around us, right? This is why I'm angry. I want the world to revolve around me. We, like Cain, have all harbored bitterness, anger, jealousy in our hearts, but the gospel changes our desires. Listen to this from 1 John 4. I love this text. We love because he first loved us. You want to grow from being an angry person? Look at the way God has loved you. Look at the cross. Let that love get in your mind, deep down in your heart. Confess your sin, repent. That's part of the change process and transforming these desires. Let the love of Jesus Christ fill your heart. And what you will find is that the once angry heart is now so focused in on the love of God that it is not inward about my kingdom, always getting what I want, this injustice. So I'm angry about the right things, but I'm walking in love and compassions and patience and grace for one another. So if you're here this morning, you want to kill sinful anger, cultivate it with love. It's going to keep sinful anger in check. You can do this. How do you cultivate love? Immerse yourself in the gospel, right? This is what we do on Sunday mornings. We sing the gospel to one another. It's in everything that we do. We meditate on the gospel. We believe the gospel. We look at how God has loved us in the gospel. He first loved us. Consider how much Christ has loved you. Let his love melt your hard, angry heart into a soft, compassionate one. And you also, church, have tools from this text to counsel an angry world. The world is very angry out there, and the church is meant to be a loving community that pushes back on that with the love of Jesus Christ that we have seen on the cross. Let me pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.